0: Let's pray together. Father, lead us now and make your word clear. Father, we pray this above all else, that we will understand. Lord, that you'll open the the eyes of faith. Lord, that we will see so clearly and so wonderfully what it is you've done for us through Jesus. So, Father, anoint us now and just really bless us <clears throat> Lord, let your word make a difference to us, because we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Right, if you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8, and uh, rather unusually we're going to start this evening by actually reading uh, a few verses together. <clears throat> you will see why later on. Deuteronomy and chapter 8. and I'm going to read from verse 1 to verse 10 now the actual timing of this Israel has done their 40 years in the wilderness and they are about to enter into Canaan alright that's and Moses is kind of preaching this whacking great big sermon to them all the commandments which I command you this day you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers and you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you these forty years in the wilderness that he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but that man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. And in actual fact that should be every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out upon you, and your foot did not swell these forty years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, The Lord your God disciplines you and in fact in three or four studies time we have a whole talk on on that one aspect. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, (coughs) a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs, flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat, barley, vines, fig trees and pomegranates a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Now that's going to kind of be our headquarters in this study, all right? We're going to be going out and exploring things from from that base. But, as I said before, this is kind of the wilderness wanderings. They've come to an end, and Israel are about to enter into the land of Canaan. Now, a very quick recap, so we keep the continuity. We're at present in our second of three phases in this series we're doing on salvation. Remember that what I've been showing you is that salvation consists of three parts. Past, present, and future. And we've seen that past salvation is salvation from the penalty of sin, what the Bible calls justification. And that's past salvation, because if you've believed on Jesus, that's it. You are in the family, and nothing can ever change that. In regards to being delivered from the penalty of sin, lake of fire, if you've believed on Jesus then you are saved in that sense once and for all. It's past tense, it's done. And that is what the Bible calls justification, to be delivered from the penalty of sin. Justified, justified, never sinned. And then we've seen, and where the phase we're in now, is what I've called present salvation. And present salvation is salvation, not from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. And, in fact, it's what the Bible calls sanctification. And the next bit that we're coming on to in a few weeks' time, of course, is future salvation, when we're going to be delivered from the very presence of sin, and then the whole thing will be complete. So we're on sanctification at the moment. And the other point to remember is that we've demonstrated that past tense salvation from the penalty of sin was through Jesus' death. Present tense salvation from the power of sin, sanctification, is through Jesus' life, and that future salvation from the presence of sin is going to be through his return. Now, at the moment, we are doing sanctification. The the moment-by-moment moment process of God delivering us from the power of sin in our lives, and this he does through the life of jesus and last time we saw that sanctification all it means sanctification and holiness when you get those words in the bible it's the same greek word you know but they're really wally translators around and so they take one greek word and they use all different english words and they manage to confuse everyone sanctification holiness the same word in the greek and it simply means to be separated to god and to therefore live the life that demonstrates that you've been separated to God. And that very basically, what we saw last time, in what was sort of like the intro to this whole subject, we, if you like, in a sense, saw the theory, all right? We saw the blueprint, and we're going to move on to see how it works out in practice. But basically, the theory of what we saw was this. (coughs) That when Jesus died on the cross, that God incorporated us into Jesus. Therefore, we share Jesus' experience, past, present and future. Remember, £5 note in your wallet, as long as it's in your wallet, it shares the experience of your wallet, alright? Only, the difference with Jesus is that salvation is retroactive. So when you believed on Jesus, you were incorporated into him, and you then share his total experience, past, present and future. And we saw that one of the experiences Jesus had was that he died to sin on the cross and that we shared that death. Now we saw that we have a new nature that we got the moment we were born again. And that nature is what I call the Jesus BJ or the Jesus version May or the Jesus version Robert and Bella or whatever. So a new Jesus version of us was created supernaturally the moment we believed on Jesus. But of course, our problem is the old version, isn't it? What the Bible calls the sin nature. And of course, the old version, the old life can only sin, but the new life we've got cannot sin. And that sanctification is about one thing. We've got two natures, one that cannot sin, one nature that can only sin, it's which nature do we live in, moment by moment. Now, we saw that by abiding in Jesus, that because we shared Jesus' death on the cross, to that extent, this old nature that we've got in Romans 6 6, we read that it's been destroyed. And we went into the Greek of that and we saw that the word for destroy is ketagio, and it means to reduce to inactivity, to neutralize, to, to render um, obsolete. All right. And what we saw, was that to the extent that we abide in Jesus, to that extent, our sin nature is neutralized by the new nature. So to the extent that we're abiding in Jesus, moment by moment, we're going to experience freedom from the power of our sin nature. But we saw that to the extent that we don't abide in Jesus, We will be under the power, not of the new life, but the old life. And I showed you that whereas in regards to past salvation, you are in Christ once and for all, Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those which are in Christ Jesus. To be in Jesus in that sense is once and for all, you can never get out of him. But in regards to sanctification, I showed you that you can be in or out. And that Paul actually writes to Christians who said you've severed yourself from Jesus. Because you're in sin. So therefore to the extent we abide and are in Jesus existentially moment by moment to that extent the Holy Spirit renders our sin nature so that it doesn't have power over us but to the extent that we're out of Jesus not abiding in him to that extent we still remain under sin and we saw and of course this is the fundamental thread that is running through everything we're doing how do you abide in Jesus and get sanctified Well, how did you get saved from the penalty of sin? By faith. And we've seen that we abide in Jesus by faith. All right. Now then, let's return to where we are here in Deuteronomy. Because, of course, what's happened is that they've just done 40 years in the wilderness and they are now about to enter into Canaan. Now, the distinctive thing about the land of Canaan is that it's a land of promise. It was a land that God said, I am going to give it to you. And all Israel had to do was go in and get it. And, of course, the amazing thing is that a few weeks after coming out of Egypt, they got an opportunity to go into Canaan. God said, right lads, go in. So they sent spies. And the spies came back and they said, oh no, there are giants there. No chance whatsoever. And they discouraged everyone and Israel threw their hands in her and said, oh no, they're too big for us, we can't go in. So they condemned themselves to for 40 years in the wilderness when in fact they all died. A new generation was raised up. And now they're about to go into Canaan after 40 years in the wilderness and that what God said to them is that every every bit of ground that you put your foot on, that's yours because I've given it. And all they had to do was go in and take the land by faith. And of course for us, the land of Canaan represents sanctification. It represents this fullness of life in Christ coming into our uh, sort of everything that Jesus has for us as we live our life down here. Canaan is not primarily a picture of heaven, all right? It can be used very loosely, but this idea of Canaan land being on the other side, the other side of physical death, that's not quite the picture that we have here. It's a picture of the Christian life. Now what we're going to do is that we're going to go into Hebrews now, And we're going to see the way that the writer to the Hebrews explains the reason for Israel to go through the wilderness. Because remember, Canaan represents coming into sanctification. It represents coming into holiness. It represents a victorious Christian life. But in order to get there, they had to go through the wilderness. And so the writer to the Hebrews explains why it is that they had to. So if you go to Hebrews chapter 3. And all the time just keep your finger in um in in, in Deuteronomy 8. Because we're going to be there quite a lot. Alright. We'll be uh, going backwards and forwards to it. Now find Hebrews chapter 3. And what I've got to do to... To, to kind of start off tonight, is to lay out a few, you know, a logical argument that you've got to see the premises, if you like, that I'm using it, and hold them, and then we'll gather it together, and you'll get the whole picture. So let's read Hebrews 3, and first of all, we're going to start at verse 7, all right? Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness. So here he's talking about the wilderness wanderings of Israel in the Old Testament, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts. They had not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, that's anger, As I swore in my wrath, they shall never enter my rest. Take care, brethren, lest there be in any of you, and now he's talking to us. Take care, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Go down into verse 18. And to whom did he swear that they should never enter his rest? The rest here is going into Canaan. And to whom did he swear that they should never enter his rest but those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Go over to chapter 4. Or continue in chapter 4 rather from verse 1. Therefore... While the promise of entering his rest remains, let us fear, lest any of you be judged to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message which they heard did not benefit them because it did not meet with faith in the hearers. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall never enter my rest although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken somewhere of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place he said, They shall never enter my rest. Now go down into verse 8. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not speak later of another day. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever enters God's rest also ceases from his labours as God did his. Now then we're going to pull that together and see exactly what it is that God, that, that, that the writer of the Hebrews is getting up to. Canaan is a picture, so he says, of entering God's rest. And the example that he gives is the rest that God took after creation. Just look at verse 9. So therefore there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. This is talking about that when God created the universe, on the seventh day he rested. So the writer is drawing a parallel with what God did when he created the universe. Now then, therefore we've got this idea that God has rested from his works and therefore we can rest from our works as well the thing that we're going through really is this I've emphasized it again and again Christianity is not what we do for the Lord Christianity is what God has done for us through Jesus And what he wants to continue to do through us, through Jesus. What we've seen is that the the key thought underlying it, Christianity in five words, you can't, but he can. So it's not what we do that counts, it's what God does purely. Last week we were looking at John 15 and the teaching that Jesus gave about the vine and the branches. And one of the things we saw was that Jesus said, I am the vine, and to the disciples he said, you are the branches. And he said, bear much fruit. And we saw that we bear fruit by abiding in him, and that abiding in him is by faith. But the point I want to make is this. Where does the fruit come from? Well, the fruit comes from the vine. Now, in regards to producing fruit, or being sanctified, whose responsibility is it? Who actually does it? Alright, Jesus is the vine, and we are the branches. Now, the picture that most people have with that verse is they think, right, there's the vine, boom, over there, Jesus. Here are the branches, boom, over there, us. Now, that's not the picture. Because tell me, What does a vine consist of? Branches. The branches are the vine. We are one with Jesus. So can you see that from start to finish, being fruitful in the Christian life is not something we do, it's something that Jesus has done. When we got saved from the penalty of sin, that was because of what Jesus did. We simply accepted it by faith. And what we're going to be seeing is that to be set free from the power of sin is exactly the same principle. It's all of Jesus from start to finish. Now then, back to Hebrews and the argument that he's putting forward. For six days, right at the beginning, six times 24 hours, God created the universe, everything that there was. When he got to the end of the sixth day he finished it and because it was all done and because there was nothing else to do he rested. God not being a workaholic. I mean to be industrious is a good thing but to work for the sake of it to my mind is silly. Alright so then God worked for six days At the end of the six days, he'd finished what he set out to do. So he stopped and he rested, all right? Now then, bear in mind that when Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished, all right? So then, we see that creation is finished. It was finished 6,000 odd years ago took six days and got, you know God had ended it. that was over, and when Jesus died on the cross, he said it is finished. now then, in Colossians one verse 17 and we've seen this earlier in the course, Paul says this he's talking about Jesus, and he says that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, when you talk about all things, you're talking about everything that exists. You're talking about the universe. So then, in regards to creation, we see this. 6,000 years ago, it was finished. All that's needed now, is that Jesus just keeps holding it together. And we've seen that one day, he's not going to need it anymore, and he's going to let go of it, he's going to blow up. Alright. So, creation is finished. It's done. There is nothing more to do For the last 6,000 years, Jesus has simply been holding it together. Alright. It's now merely sustained. Now, we're going to see that this is exactly the same as our salvation. In regards to past salvation from the penalty of sin, in actual fact, it's finished. It's done. Everything necessary has been accomplished. And in regards to us being set free from the power of sin, sanctification, we're going to see exactly the same. It's done. Jesus did everything that was needed on the cross. Why? Because we died on the cross with him. Can you see? It's all been finished. So that when Jesus said on the cross it's finished, he really meant that in a totally comprehensive way. Now then, creation is finished it merely needs holding together our salvation our justification and sanctification also is totally finished it merely needs holding together by Jesus hence in John 10 verse 28 Jesus said this none shall pluck them from my hand can you see that holding us together And because nothing can pluck us from his hand, we will always be held together in our salvation. Alright. So then, what is the problem? Creation is finished. Our salvation is finished. We are free from the power of sin because we've died to it on the cross with Jesus. So what exactly is the problem? Go back to Hebrews 3. And this is what we're going to be centering in on first of all, verse 12 then verse 19 here is the problem take care brethren lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God verse 19 so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief and remember the picture of Israel entering Canaan was entering into victory over sin the the uh, a victorious christian life so therefore what prevents us entering into a victorious christian life unbelief simple as that all right we've seen that to be justified and to be sanctified is by faith unbelief undoes that process so unbelief will prevent us moving in this victory over sin now then the point is this we have no problem believing that the universe exists the creation of the universe is over God's provision for us to be safe from the power of sin is over, it's been done but we have no problem believing the universe exists absolutely none and I'll prove that to you, you got up this morning and the reason you got up this morning is because you were totally convinced that the universe exists you were totally convinced that you exist So being very clever and very deep thinkers, you put two and two together and you go up. Can you see what I mean? So no problem believing that the universe exists. But is it the same for our Christian lives? Turn to Romans 6, back to where we were last week. Romans chapter 6. and in romans 6 verse 11 we read this paul says so you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to god in jesus christ now what is paul saying here consider yourself dead to sin he's already outlined as we've seen that we died with jesus on the cross and that basically, to the extent that we believe that we're dead to sin, we will be. So in verse 11, he says, consider yourselves, or I think in the King James, it says, reckon yourself dead to sin. And we've seen this word, consider or reckon, lodges, oh my. And it's an accountancy term, if you had a ready reckoner, all right. It means to count on something. Uh, i.e., if I put 50 quid into my bank today... Tomorrow, I can count on being able to draw at least 50 quid out. That is to consider, all right, to reckon. So the point is, you know it's true, and because you know it's true, you count on it, and you act on it. So, what we're saying, Paul here says, consider yourselves dead to sin, or in a sense, what he says, look, believe it. He says, you are dead to sin, therefore, believe that you're dead to sin so what we're seeing here is I've already said you got set free from the penalty of sin by believing on Jesus that Jesus did it for you how do you get set free from the power of sin exactly the same way you believe and act on the fact that Jesus has done it for you where have we come thus far thus far we've got two facts All right? In front of us. Fact number one. The universe exists. All right? Because God finished it 6,000 years ago. Fact one. The universe exists. Fact two. Our sin nature was crucified with Jesus. All right? Therefore, because of that, we have freedom from the power of sin. Let's... Look at it again, Romans 6, verse 6 and 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the sinful body might be destroyed, ketahgioed, neutralised, and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. So there we have the two facts before us. The universe exists because God finished that 6,000 years ago and we have freedom from the power of sin because Jesus finished that 2,000 years ago but the problem being we believe and act quite naturally on fact 1 that the universe exists you got up this morning but we have a terrible problem believing fact number 2 And fact number two is as much a fact as fact number one. Two statements, God created the universe and he finished it. He enabled us to die to sin in Jesus and he finished it. They are both equally true. But the difference, we believe the first one, but we don't believe the second one. So can you see that we're seeing that the secret of of being set free from the penalty of sin is faith. It's believing that Jesus has done it for us. But we're seeing that the great problem we have is that we are unable to have that faith because, as we have seen, we have, because of the sinful nature, an evil heart of unbelief. And tonight we're going to see what the real problem is. And the real problem is, quite simply, unbelief. And it's got to be, if everything is by faith, believing, the only thing that can prevent it is unbelief. Can you see that? Unbelief is the opposite of faith. Not being sinful, not being naughty, the opposite of faith, is unbelief. And this is our problem. Go to Jeremiah 17. And I'm going to show you now how this is sort of stamped all over the Bible. And this is very important for us to realise. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. desperately wicked who can understand it now then we know that the heart is desperately corrupt wicked sinful but it's deceitful above all things now deceit is to do with not believing the truth can you see what I mean it's a form of unbelief if I say I had it in for you And I wanted to be deceitful behind your back and I spread lies about you. Why am I doing that? Because I want someone to believe something other than the truth about you. I want to defame your character. Therefore, those people who believe lies about you are in unbelief about you. Can you see that? Because they're not believing that which is true. So, we've seen in Hebrews an evil, unbelieving heart. We've seen that in, um, in Jeremiah, God says that our heart is deceitful above all things. It's not sticking to the truth. That's what unbelief is all about. And you see, why unbelief is the fundamental problem is this. It is the root of all sin. Now, whereas the love of money is the root of all evil, the root of all sin itself is unbelief it's the very heart of the matter and think with me in i think the second study in this course we saw the great divide we saw how the problem entered the universe and man was separated from god what was it that caused sin to come in the world in the first place i'll tell you eve believed satan's lies rather than god's truth sin is unbelief any sin you care to name is, if you like, but a facet of the diamond of unbelief. Unbelief is the basic fundamental sin. And I'll tell you why. It calls God a liar. Because unbelief and rebellion are the same thing. Unbelief calls God a liar. God says something is true. We refuse to believe it. We say it's not true. And here are we, the creation Calling the Creator a liar, a mistaken. Now can you see in those few words we've defined, in essence, the very essence of what sin is. It's unbelief, it's rebellion against God's authority. In John 8, 32, Jesus says this, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Can you see that? We're talking about being free from bondage to sin what's going to set us free knowing the truth is what's going to set us free why because it's the truth that counters our unbelief and it's unbelief that prevents us from being free can you see that john 17 verse 17 when jesus is praying in the garden of gethsemane he's praying for the disciples and for us and he prays this sanctify them that's what we're looking at sanctification he prays to the father sanctify them in the truth your word is truth so jesus is saying lord the only way they're going to get sanctified is by the truth well that's great but how do we find the truth your word is truth can you see the emphasis here it's truth it's believing that which is true in the word of god Last week we saw John 15 verse 4, this thing about the vine, alright. Jesus said, abide in me. That's abiding in Jesus by faith, being in Jesus in the sense of freedom from the power of sin. But he goes on to say, if you abide in me and my words, abide in you. And the words of Jesus are truth. Can you see, abiding in Jesus is believing that which is true, it's by faith. And, Romans 10, verse 17, so faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Now, can you see, the real problem, the fundamental problem that we're struggling with, is not sin per se. I mean, it is sin, but it's not individual sins or anything like that. It's the underlying unbelief that characterizes our basic makeup. And that that unbelief is overcome by the truth of the word of God but what we 've got to ask is this right okay we 've died to jesus we 've died with Jesus to sin, uh most of us baptized in the Holy Spirit may be fairly mature in the Christian life, so the question is all right, unbelief is the problem, but why, oh, why is our unbelief so strong? now, can you see this is we, we've nailed down that the problem is unbelief. But now we've got to say, okay, right, the problem is unbelief, but why is, it, why is it that we can't just tonight get up and say, right, I'm through with unbelief? Why is its grip so strong on us? We've got to understand it. What exactly is the power that unbelief has over us? It grips us. What is its hold on our life? What gives unbelief its power over us? now i think the answer is going to surprise you but we must be very honest because the answer what gives unbelief such a strong hold over us i'll tell you our cooperation does because we lay out the red carpet to it we like it let me demonstrate this and you're going to see why it is that we've read the passage in deuteronomy you see i'm saying that the reason that unbelief is so strong in us is because we cooperate with it, and we co and, and this sort of cooperation that we give unbelief is for three, it takes three forms. We cooperate with unbelief in three ways, and the three ways are this, and this is what we're going to look at tonight. Number one, we like sinning, to be quite honest, we like sinning. Number two. Pride keeps us independent from God. And then thirdly, and you'll see this a bit later, that we have a perverted outlook on the future, bearing in mind that no one has been saved all their lives. We've all had years and years of being indoctrinated by a sinful world, and we have a perverted outlook on the future. So then, in order for God to bring us into deliverance from this bondage of unbelief, he has got to destroy in us these three forms of, you know, um, the way we cooperate with unbelief. And then when God has destroyed these things, because unbelief lose, loses our help, it will lose its power over us. Now go back to Deuteronomy 8, and we'll pull this together, I think you'll see where it is that we're actually heading. Deuteronomy chapter 8. And remember, God is here speaking to Israel saying why they went through the wilderness. And what we're seeing is that in order to come into the victorious Christian life we must go through the wilderness. And it's going through the wilderness that enables God to break the power of unbelief over us. All right. So let's actually see it. First of all, remember, I've, sho- I've said that the first reason that unbelief gets our help is because we like sin. All right? But God wants us to hate sin because he hates it he loves the people who commit sin but god hates sin in every form so he wants us to but we like it so what must happen is the only way that god can i mean say he's got us he hates sin we like sin god wants us to hate it as much as he does the only way that god can do that is to show us our sinfulness For what it really is, alright? He's got to show us why he hates sin. Show us the truth about our sinfulness. And believe me, to taste of our sinfulness is to learn to hate it. Look, verse 2. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. That he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you will keep his commandments or not. Now, this isn't God, this testing them to find out what was in their hearts, whether they'd obey God or not, this isn't because God wants to know. God's omniscient. God knows everything. When God was testing them, it wasn't because he thought, oh, I wonder if they're going to obey me oh I think I'll put them through a few problems then I'll know that's, that's not because God knows everything it was to, sh- to show them whether they would obey him or not and of course what was the truth of the matter they didn't obey him so the point was that God had to demonstrate their sinfulness to them it's one thing to believe it as a doctrine but believe me it's quite another thing to actually know and experience the dreadfulness of our sin. You see, we've already read in Jeremiah that the heart is deceitful above all things. But I'll tell you, the greatest, the most dangerous, the fundamental deceit of our hearts is not that we deceive other people. I mean, my heart will try and deceive others to get my own way or whatever, but that's not the poison of of our hearts the poison of the deceit of our hearts is that they deceive us that's the poison it's not that my heart deceives you my heart deceives me my heart is constantly working saying that's not a sin Beresford it's constantly working to say that's alright can you see what I mean my heart is trying to deceive me the whole time about my sin It's calling right, wrong, and it's calling wrong, right, and I'm believing it. Now the point is we don't appreciate the depth of our sinfulness. I mean, some Christians wouldn't want to know about the things I'm saying. They say, "Oh, this is a bit too negative, a bit too introspective. It's not negative, it's not introspective at all. But what I'm saying is that we need so much to taste the truth of the extent of our sinfulness. I I know the night when I was converted, 17 odd years ago, for the first time in my life I knew I was a sinner. I really did. I met Jesus and I knew that I was a sinner. And that was a real knowledge of sin. And I, I knew the shame of being a sinner. And that was real. But it was nothing, nothing compared to conviction of sin that God started to work in me years later. Can you see what I mean? It's merely a taste, it's a foretaste. In the same way that we have a foretaste of heaven now and when we get to heaven, boy, we're really going to see it in all its glory. When we get converted we have a foretaste of conviction of sin, but that's nothing. It's nothing compared to the conviction of sin that God wants us to eventually experience to really see the depth of our sin not other people's sin I'm, I'm not now talking about the person sitting next to you I'm talking about you and I'm talking about me the depths of our sinfulness Paul said I know that in my flesh dwells no good thing sorry but it doesn't in yours either the only good thing that dwells in you is the new creation and that's there but we're talking about the old nature and believe me in that you of yourself before you were born again of the Holy Spirit nothing good at all go to Psalm 139 139 and we're going to read verse 23 and 24 and this is David, he says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, and know my thoughts, and soon, if there be any wicked way in me. Now here we have King David, a believer, actually asking God to give him a greater revelation of his own sinfulness. This is not how many Christians like to pray, and I'm certainly not advocating that we pray this all the time that's not what I'm saying at all but I'm saying that a genuine (coughs) part of the Christian life is to come into a realisation of the full extent of our sinfulness and we must ask God to show us it that is part of being a disciple now the terrible thing about praying that prayer is that when you pray according to God's will He answers he gives you what you're asking for so if you pray for a deeper revelation of your own sinfulness do you know what will happen? you'll get it because you've prayed according to God's will so as soon as you pray that immediately God's Holy Spirit goes into action but the thing I want to emphasize now is have you ever thought about all the different names that the Holy Spirit could have been given I mean, the powerful spirit, that would have suited him to a T, alright? The healing spirit, that would have suited him to a T, alright? The omniscient spirit, perfect! But what name did he take upon himself? The Holy Spirit, alright? So when the Holy Spirit goes into action, you know what to expect. And what you can expect is this. It's Newton's law of action and reaction, alright? I.e. when something moves in one way, there is an equal and opposite force working against it and set up by it. Which means simply this. If we're praying, Lord, show me my sinfulness, and the Holy Spirit goes into action, What is the equal and opposite reaction that the Holy Spirit brings out of us? Well, equal, opposite, he's holy, it brings sinful reaction out of us. And we're talking now about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in convicting of sin. And when the Holy Spirit goes into action to sanctify us, to end, to break our cooperation with our unbelief, because we like sin. When he goes into action, what starts to happen is this. Problems. Everything starts to go wrong. Now, there you've been, praising the Lord, and you are one of the most radiant Christians that your brothers and sisters know. You've worked very hard to give them that impression, and they all have it, You see. So, I mean, here we are, sort of (laughs) trotting along, and I mean, we, we really... And, and, and then you see all the blessing starts to stop and suddenly whereas you you know exactly what you're praying for you know what you want all right, and you start to get the opposite, every prayer goes unanswered well it doesn't go answered you get the exact opposite to what you're praying for <laughs> I'm, I'm going over the top a bit but can you see what I mean? and what happens is in very fundamental terms you're not getting your own way anymore, and anymore. It's not going smooth. Uh, You know, the the last person you want to be in fellowship with joins your fellowship. It's (laughs) it's this kind of thing. And what happens is, is that our wills are crossed. Alright? Our wills are crossed. Now, you've seen children whose wills are crossed. Alright? Tangents. Now then, the point is this that God begins to work against our sinful desires. I mean, we think that they're perfectly good desires, because after all, we may well be, um, you know, sort of praying for people to be healed, and that's a terrific thing to do. No problem with that at all. But, supposing there's an element of, and of course, when people get healed, everyone will know that I laid hands on. Can you see what I mean? Now, your will is crossed. Can you see what I mean? And that brings out a reaction. And what happens is that God works against us. He manipulates circumstances, all right? works against us. Things start going wrong. Life stops being the kind of, you know, the, the breeze. The, you know, the kind of the charismatic knees-up breeze. It suddenly ceases to be that. And what happens is that our, demonst- our reactions do the demonstrating of what's in our heart. Now, all I can say is that in, in certain times in the past, and I, I'm thinking especially of one period of three or four years in my life when God really did start to deal with me in a severe way, I can't, Im- I mean, apart from having an accident and losing both my legs, I can't think of a more unpleasant few years I honestly cannot think of a more unpleasant few years that God put me through but my goodness what I learned about myself do you remember our caterpillar old Clarence all the muck starts to come out of him do you remember and he's trapped well I mean I I, I was shocked at my sinfulness which said only one thing about me that I was incredibly self-righteous and you will be shocked with your sinfulness which will prove how self-righteous you are and how much God needs to deal with you can you see, because we're talking about the deceit of our sin I did not know I was that sinful and I was very loath to believe that I was that sinful as well and you know what happened? things in me that I thought were fine that I didn't think twice about because it was just me living my life just me dealing with people just me relating in the ordinary day to day hustle bustle of life things that i thought nothing of i grew to hate in me can you see what i'm saying because i saw them for what they really were and things that i thought were fine in me i grew to hate things that i once defended I grew to hate, and all I wanted was to be shot of them. Can you see? We like sinning. So God, by showing us how awful sin really is, if you realise that something you like is in actual fact terrible, then you'll stop liking it, and you'll learn to hate it, and then you'll learn to stop cooperating with it. Go into John 12, John chapter 12. And find verse 23. When Paul says, uh, when Jesus says this, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And remember, when Jesus was glorified, I mean, for instance, say say that, uh, I mean, how, how do we tend to think about being glorified? I mean, sort of say that I was asked to preach at a massive international rally at the Albert Hall. We would think in terms that Beresford's hour has come, this is it, this is it, you know, international launch for ministry, glory, alright, now Jesus said, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified, what was Jesus' idea of glory, the exact opposite, he died like a criminal, died like a dog, alright, do we want to be glorified with Jesus, I'm afraid we've got to die like a dog to sin, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You've got to hate your life in this world. Now, of course, what we're talking about is not hating yourself full stop. We're talking about hating our sin self. Hating the old nature. Hating our sin and if we do that we pick up our cross and we follow Jesus into death to that sin There are Christians who kind of hate themselves in the wrong way. I just want to put something in about this um You know sort of people. I mean you get unbelievers doing it, but you get believers doing it. They they hate themselves They're always down on themselves all right So, for instance, maybe they think they're ugly and they hate themselves because they're ugly, you see. And we have a picture that these people are hating themselves. Let me tell you that's not true. They're not hating themselves at all. Um, Paul says in Corinthians that no man ever hated his own flesh. Now, that used to puzzle me because I knew people who did. I thought, there's something wrong there. How can Paul say no man hates his own flesh? when i know people who have hated themselves and at times i've hated myself in this wrong way you see now the point is say for instance you've got someone who they think they're ugly and they hate themselves for it you know do you know the people i'm talking about well let me tell you they're not hating themselves at all if they hated themselves they'd be glad they were ugly Do you see what I mean? Yeah? Oh no! Yeah! If I hated you, if I hate someone, I want the worst to happen to them. Alright? So someone who hates themselves would be rejoicing in every calamity that comes their way. But do they? No! These people who hate themselves, they're always moaning about their lot. Someone who hates themselves who's ugly, is going to be glad that they're ugly. Can you see what I mean? So the point is that it's, it's a deception of the heart. Really, they love themselves. They love themselves so much that they're totally wrapped up with themselves. I just wanted to chuck that in because certainly if you get into counselling situations that, that changes things a bit, doesn't it, you see? Um, So, and also, with these people who so-called hate themselves, and I've shown you that they don't really hate themselves at all, they love themselves, but they give this idea that they hate themselves. Their problem is that they're not hating their sinful self, and that probably they're bemoaning and repenting of everything except whatever it is that they're hiding from God and he's dealing with them about. Can you see what I mean? Um, You know, that that the answer to that is repentance somewhere something is wrong and kind of oh there 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 you're not as bad as all that because when sometimes uh, and i mean i'm not going to say that that this is all the time dreadful because it's right sometimes that we need to be built up and encouraged so what i'm going to say now can happen in a right way but it can also happen in a wrong way Because sometimes someone can be down on themselves, alright, and they're kind of going on about how rotten and sinful they are. And all they want you to do is to tell them how great you are. Can you see? I mean, they're simply searching for flattery. It's as simple as that. It's another form of pride. So I just wanted to chuck that in. But basically, where we've come to is that this first form of co-operating with unbelief is because we like sin. Now, if God deals with us and shows us our sinfulness, what it really is, and we then come to hate our sin, can you see that our cooperation with unbelief to that extent is broken down? And unbelief starts to lose its hold on us. And true, deep, ongoing repentance as Christians begins. Right, now the second thing, the second form in which we cooperate with our unbelief is this. Because of our pride, we like to be independent from God, simple as that, you see, because you know, like to feel capable. So in order to break this thing in us, this independence, I mean of course today in the 20th century you've got to be independent, haven't you? I mean apparently, nowadays, I mean the sign of a really modern 20th century woman, who's got everything going for her is a woman who's totally independent from her husband. I and mean, can you see how twisted we've got? In the same way that I wouldn't want to see a man who was totally independent from his wife. Independence itself, in that sense, is wrong. Can you see? So therefore, in order for God to, to break this independent spirit that we have from him, what he's got to do is to demonstrate that however independent we might kid ourselves we are, that the truth of the matter is that we are utterly dependent on him. And eventually we'll come to believe it. Go back to Deuteronomy 8. This is the, as it were, our base verse. So we're saying that God takes you through the world, he has to break this independence that you have from him. Let's read verse 3. The second reason God took him through the, uni- uh, through the I say universe, through the wilderness, <laughs> to boldly go. Where, no, it's through the wilderness down here, but through the universe later, when we go on to future salvation. And he humbled you, and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know. Notice that, humble you. Nor did your fathers know that he might make you know. you see? That he might make you know. Right? That man does not live by bread alone. But that man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Now in John 15 verse 5. Jesus said this to the disciples. Again this is in the I'm the vine, you are the branches bit. And he says this. Apart from me. You can do nothing. Now, that grace, because we, we do want to feel a little bit capable of something. We're, we're kind of too proud to admit our utter helplessness before God. The truth of the matter is, we cannot do His will in our strength now the dreadful thing about the Christian life is you can live it for 20, 30, 40 years in your own strength but then you're not doing God's will because the truth of the matter is you cannot do God's will in your strength so whatever you're doing in your strength it ain't God's will can you see it's a logical impossibility they are mutually exclusive but the problem is here we are gaily living our Christian lives in our own strength thinking it's God's will you see. So, therefore, here we are, we can follow Jesus. We're following him, you know, we're obeying the four spiritual laws, we're doing everything that he says in all the books we read and stuff like that. So, the Holy Spirit goes into action, you see. Now, how does he, well, same as before, he manipulates circumstances. This is similar to what we said about symbol, it's a bit different, because you see, he manipulates circumstances, making it so tough that you can't do it anymore in your own strength you see what I mean so you've been living your Christian life in your own strength for years and years and years but then it goes wrong and suddenly you get in situations that you cannot handle which is exactly what God wants to do to you to put you in situations that you cannot handle in your own strength, because it's too tough, and then you realise that you're in your strength and not his strength. You see, it's only when you come to the end of your own efforts that you actually start to get a little bit dependent on Jesus. Now, how did he do it in uh, Israel going through the wilderness? Well, the thing is that in the wilderness for 40 years, remember every morning and evening they got this manna, down from heaven, so there's no grub or anything like that, it's manners, these kind of bickies alright, and um, I'm coming back to bickies later and you see, the truth of the matter was, is that the Jews couldn't even feed themselves in the wilderness, can you see that? They had to let God even feed them, they had no independence whatsoever God did it all, God fed them, or they starved, you see. Um, fathers, proud Jewish faithful fathers, couldn't even feed their kids. Not for them this feeling of, I'm out there, I'm the breadwinner for my family. Well no, all things come from God, not you. All comes from God, can you see? That's have humbled them. Really did. They couldn't even feed their own kids. They had to let God do that for them. Can you see the principle? Now then, in John 4.34, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me. And that in the Bible, food is representative of doing God's will. You see, it's sanctification. Jesus said, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me. In the wilderness, the Jews could not feed themselves they had to let God do it what does this show us? you cannot live the Christian life you've got to let Jesus do it I'm sorry, it's not up to you it's up to him, however humbling that can what are we seeing? you can't, but he can but boy, you've got to admit it first and that is not always easy here we're reading man does not live by bread alone Bread alone represents, shall we say, the material universe. And there's nothing wrong with the material universe at all. But it represents life separated from the power of God, in that sense. Now man doesn't live by that alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now when Jesus in the New Testament quotes this, in the actual Greek formulation he uses, it's not man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds. It's... Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that is proceeding, continually proceeding from the mouth of God. So the point is that what's showing us here is that the Christian life is fully and totally Jesus living through us. It's not what we do. We must live by the continually proceeding word of God. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word. Who is the continually proceeding Word of God? It's Jesus! Jesus lives the Christian life through us. Therefore, our attempts to live the Christian life must be broken, because they represent our independence from God, which God must break, okay? Now, that being broken, is what entering God's rest in Hebrews is talking about. Because our sanctification is finished, there's nothing more for us to do but if we try to originate it then it's us not him therefore there's got to be this being broken from our own efforts and attempts so that we can enter into that rest and now we come back to the biggies, because you see what the holy spirit's doing he sees our proud independence from god and he wants to nobble it now when god gets his teeth into you one nibble and you're nobbled do you know the advert I'm talking about? One nibbling you noble. Can you say that God wants to nobble our independence, our own strength? He wants to break it. And in fact, in the next study, this thing about brokenness is is what we'll be going into. And it's only in that brokenness that you realise that you are totally dependent on Jesus. But again, it's one thing to believe it doctrinally but it's another thing to really know it in your heart. So therefore, the Holy Spirit goes into action as the great nobbler of God's children. Okay, so this independence from God is broken. Now the third problem I said, is that we have this perverted outlook on the future. Um, now, God wants to deliver us from that, because remember, we live in time, so the future is always coming upon us. And it's a fundamental human error that of, of a perverted outlook on the future, one way or the other. Now, what we want to see is this, if you go and read verse 7. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. Uh, basically, God describes all the blessings that they are going to move into. So therefore, the future that God had for them, they're going through the wilderness, God's dealing with them. But the future that he had for them was a fantastic future. Their future was to possess the land of Canaan. Our future is to more and more enter into the power of Jesus, freedom from the penalty of sin, until one day, either when we die or at the rapture, we enter into complete glory and we're free from sin totally. Now we have a fantastic future in front of us, both down here and when we get up there. But the point is, because our hearts are unbelieving, they pervert this outlook. And because we let this perverted outlook dictate to us, it feeds our unbelieving heart. Now, the first, this this perverted outlook takes two different and seemingly opposite uh, faces. The first one is largely sort of covered by the last point. But some people's outlook on the future is, is what I am going to do for the kingdom of God. and and their outlook on the future is you wait till I get out there Lord you know can you see so they're expecting blessing they're expecting good things to come and they're right in believing that but where they're so wrong is because they think they're going to go out there and do it can you see what I mean Uh, two things happen to two of God's people in the Old Testament which is very very important to understand This is, I've largely covered this in the last point, but I just want to, you know, this kind of independence from God and what I'm going to do for Jesus. Do you remember when Moses, after he blew it, remember he moved out in faith, and he totally blew it in his own strength, he became a murderer, and he was driven out of the very situation that God wanted to use him in. So 40 years, 40 years since God has spoken to Moses, alright, and then God speaks to him again through the burning bush but one of the first things that God says to him is Moses take your shoes off that interesting take off your shoes Joshua great leader of God's people took over from Moses alright the first real test of leadership he faced was when they had to take Jericho I remember he went out and he was walking up and down and that spying Jericho and he met the man with the drawn sword commander of the army of the Lord of Hope, say, Jesus himself in his pre-existence. And what did Jesus say to him? Take off your shoes. Now what did Moses and Joshua have to learn? What does take your shoes off me? It means this, shoes are for going places in. And they weren't going anywhere. Can you see? They weren't <laughs> going anywhere. It was what Jesus was going to do. Wasn't their leadership, wasn't what they were going to do, so take your shoes off, you boy are not going anywhere. But I am going places through you, you see. So the point, the picture is that the truth of the matter is that God is bringing us to a place where we take our shoes off because we ain't going anywhere and then we become his shoes. And the important thing about shoes is that say when I go to bed, I take my shoes off, put them by the bed when I wake up in the morning they're still there and the reason they're still there is because I wasn't in them can you see your shoes only go where you go now you've got a problem when you've got a pair of shoes that go walkies without you haven't you <laughs> can you see because the point about shoes is that they only move when you move in them and Jesus said I only do what I see my father doing can you see that picture So in this perverted outlook on the future for some they're expecting the blessings of God and that's right but inside it's oh wait till I get out there you know they think the secret is them it's not it's Jesus but the second outlook uh, that, and uh, this is the one I really want to home in on because this tends to afflict I think more people than the prior point and it's those Christians with this sense of hopelessness about the future can you see they strain away believing what God's going to do and to a certain extent they believe God's going to do it they read the promises in the Bible they believe that in the last days that God's spirit is going to be poured out but they're hopeless and their problem is that they can't imagine God using them see what I mean Uh, there are two types of people who will not be used by God God won't use them alright the type of person that will is like Isaiah, who stands before God and says, however, reluctantly, here are my Lord, send me. No problem. God did use them. All right? But the second and third type of people won't get used. The first one is the one who says, here are my Lord, send him. All right? Now, he won't get used because he doesn't want to be. I mean, he's, he's a sky boat. And there are a lot of people who work really hard in their secular lives, you know, at work and stuff like that. But when it comes to the kingdom, they're skivers. Simple as that, alright? They're on the sky, so here are my lords send in. But the other type of person who won't get used, and this is the sort I want to home in on, are those who say, Here are my lord, but I'll bet you'll use someone else. Can you see? they're that type of people now these are the Christians they're usually down on themselves alright but again it's simply another manifestation of the evil heart of unbelief why? well because here I'm talking about Christians who believe that that God can't use them now what's their mistake? they think it depends on them and they don't think they're up to it It doesn't matter whether they're up to it. If it's Jesus who does it, then our state is, you know, neither here nor there. We may think, oh, I'm not a good speaker, or I haven't got a dynamic person. So what? I'm not very clever. So what? If it depends on Jesus, so what about you? And as long as we're kind of, oh, the Lord won't use me or use someone else, that is another denial that it's Jesus who's going to do it, it's calling God a liar, Um, it's pride, this type of Christian is usually walking around under a haze of condemnation, aren't they, you see, oh they've sinned, now you know, I mean for most of us you sin, it's enough to confess it and it's forgiven, fine, I like that, I like that, I can't keep living with my own sin, I have to get rid of it. I have to know that God takes it on, all right, and that when I repent of it, that's it. It's gone. But these people, they they can't do that. They they kind of they they're punishing themselves all the time. They can't just let a sin go. They can't just confess it and say, "Oh, praise you, Lord. It's gone. You've forgiven it." And you see, the thing is that the point is that these people are very proud. They look humble. Be humble, don't they? But they're not really they're intensely arrogant and what they're doing is this the Bible says that Jesus was punished for our sins alright but these people are too proud for that they don't want Jesus to be punished for their sins they, they want to do their own suffering you see what I mean and Jesus is saying look I was punished for your sins I took the guilt of your sins and they're saying oh yes Lord but I'm going to do my bit i'm going to suffer for my sin can you see the intense pride they're too proud to let jesus has accept that jesus has done all the suffering for them it is pride absolutely some christians think i've got to improve before i can expect god to use me you see now all right so they go on a self-improvement course but it's a self improvement course. It's all pride, it's all determined to do our bit fly the flag for BJ or fly the flag for Robert or fly the flag for Belinda. Can you see it's the evil heart of unbelief parading itself and it's only when God breaks us from these things you see Um other people again the reason that they say um, oh it won't be me that God uses is because they're not willing to look a wally can you see that? They, they wouldn't dare you know, I mean okay they quite like God to use them to heal somebody but they're not going to actually lay hands on someone because what if they're not healed and they look silly what is it? it's pride many Christians do not move in the gifts of the spirit because they're too concerned about what people thinks think of them now I'll tell you what they're doing I'll tell you what you do when you hold back on following God when you think about what other people think I'll tell you the truth when I hold back and you're saying God I don't care what you think of me but I do care what other people it, it's the evil heart of unbelief isn't it? rebelling against God now we've got to, to see this we've got to take this truth about ourselves <coughs> in that in regards to the future yes it is a brilliant future, it's a fantastic future but let me tell you, it's not going to be because of you so don't get proud, there's nothing special about you but on the other hand if you're one of these terribly meek Christians who wouldn't presume to, to, to believe that God might use them, well let me tell you, you're being far too proud, you ought to just humble yourself Because it doesn't depend on you anyway, it's going to depend on Jesus. Can you see, it blows apart this perverted outlook we have on the future. It frees us to see the future for what it is that God wants to use us. He decides how he's going to use each one of us individually, but he wants to use us and it's going to be absolutely great. Now go back to Hebrews 3. And just tie together the loose ends here. And Hebrews chapter 3. let's read 7 to 9 again, alright? Because I'm going to give us something we can do now. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, when you hear His voice, and you're hearing his voice now because I'm telling you what the Bible says today when you hear his voice do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness when your fathers put me the test and saw my works for forty years we must repent of our rebellion and not harden our hearts because the key to this unbelief thing is seeing it's our rebellion and it's when we start judging it for what it is seeing ourselves for what we are and repenting of it and not hardening our hearts then we are opening the door wide to the holy spirit to break this power that unbelief has over us so what i'm saying is But if we cooperate, if we live in a genuine repentance, if we refuse to harden our hearts, what we're doing is we're refusing to cooperate with unbelief and we are then cooperating with Jesus in breaking it. But if we remain unrepentant and unwilling to admit the truth about ourselves, then we're cooperating with our unbelief and not cooperating with Jesus. Jesus is seeking us to deliver us from the power of our evil hearts of unbelief. Now we must cooperate with him in that. Go to the first epistle of Peter. The first epistle of Peter and chapter 1 we're going to read verse 3 to 7 and see what it is that he's saying here. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, we have been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's past salvation. We have been born anew, all right? And to an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. There's future salvation. Yep. Verse 5, who, by God's power, are, present tense, guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So there we've got present salvation and future salvation again. So he's moving in, he's talking about present salvation. He's saying you've been born anew, you've got an inheritance that's been kept for you, but what about now? What's going on now? And he says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer various trials. It's through the wilderness, isn't it? Why? (coughs) So that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, which though perishable is tested by fire, may redound to praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Without having seen him, you do love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. Can you see there's faith? And rejoice with unutterable and exalted joy. As the outcome of your faith, you obtain the salvation of your souls. That's so it's leading up to final, future salvation. So can you see that present salvation, what's going on down here, is that we are in the melting pot. All right and of course he's talking about the way that gold was purified in the ancient world and probably still is and of course what happens is that you've got some gold all right okay now there's gold here but there's also a lot of muck there now you want more gold and less unprecious ores and dirt in it so what do you do you chuck it in the fire it melts and all the muck floats up to the top Now, it can be skimmed off, then you've got more gold and less muck. Now, the point is, Jesus in you is the gold, but your sinful nature is the muck. What happens in the furnace of afflictions and testing? What happens? Action, reaction. You see your sinfulness for what it really is. God forces it out of you. Clarence's muck comes out from inside of him, alright? It can be skimmed off, you can deal with it. It can be brought before God and repented of. And the result is that there's more of Jesus and less of us. And you remember, and it's a constantly ongoing process. And do you remember what John the Baptist said of Jesus? He must increase and I must decrease. So what we must do is we must cooperate with Jesus and not cooperate with our evil heart of unbelief. Now next time I've spoken about God being broken from our own efforts. That as long as we're trying in our strength we get nowhere and that God must break us from that. Next time we're going to see that aspect of what you call, you know, sort of sanctification. How God has to break us from our own strength. And we're going to be seeing that next time. But just to end, I want to just read you some verses from a hymn, alright, and it's a hymn, hymn by John Newton, you know, the bloke who wrote um, Amazing Grace, now this hymn isn't known very widely, alright, but it's good, uh, just before I read it, alright, let me tell you that gourds, we're going to get to a word gourds, alright, it's a plant, and in, Med- you know, it's sort of oldie worldie language, it represents security, alright, now then, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. I hoped that in some favoured hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And let the angry powers of hell Assault my soul in every part Yea more with his own hand it seemed Intent to aggravate my woe Crossed all the fair designs I schemed Blasted my goods, securities And laid me low Lord why is this I trembling cried Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death "'Tis in this way,' the Lord replied, "'I answer prayer for grace and faith. "'These inward trials I employ "'from self and pride to set thee free "'and break the schemes of earthly joy "'that thou may seek thy all in me.'" John Newton knew exactly what I've been talking about tonight because he went through it and that hymn was him saying how it happened to him. He understood, and we need to pray that we will understand and experience this as well. Next time, we continue.